0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 2018, Boots Riley wrote and directed his first feature film, Sorry to Bother You. If you saw it, you know that it is hilarious and scary and insightful and generally just completely bonkers. Like, I I can't get too deep into it without spoiling the story, but, yeah, I mean, it is some wild stuff happens in that movie. And then Boots had another wild idea. A story about a 13-foot-tall giant. A black man. A teenager, really. And not about that 13-foot-tall man's superpowers, or whatever, but instead about how he sees himself, little personal stuff, like his star sign. Four years later, I'm a Virgo, premiered on TV. Jerrell Jerome stars as Cootie, the aforementioned 13-foot-tall giant. Cootie was born and raised in Oakland, at first crammed into a normal house with his aunt and uncle, then in a giant-sized shack out back. He never shows himself to the outside world. His aunt says the world isn't ready. When the show starts, Cootie turns 19. His family wants him to stay hidden. He decides to go out into the world. What could go wrong? I'm a Virgo is a fantastic show, and you should definitely watch it. But this isn't an interview about I'm a Virgo. I mean, we do talk about I'm a Virgo some, But Boots Riley is a writer, and his union, the Writers Guild of America, has been on strike at this point for the better part of the summer. Boots Riley is also more than just a writer. He was the frontman and founder of The Coup, a fiercely political hip-hop group from the Bay Area. He was also born into activism. His parents were both organizers. Boots was active in progressive politics, including labor organizing, before he was old enough to drive. So we'll talk about all that, too, and we'll talk about what's at stake in the dispute between the WGA and the studio heads represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or the AMPTP. Also, this interview was taped in June before the Screen Actors Guild went out on strike. You will hear references to them early on. I'm so thrilled to welcome Boots Riley back on the show, one of my favorite writer-directors and favorite musicians, so let's get into it my conversation with Boots Riley. Boots Riley, welcome back to Bullseye. I'm happy to see you. Yeah. And congratulations on this uh, new show and all this work you've got going. It's so, just makes me very happy to know about
0: it. I just, I'm just thrilled about it. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. It's uh, started writing it like four years ago. So putting in the work.
1: Yeah. Before we get to the show and some of the stuff you're up to right now, let's talk about the strike. Um, as we record this, you know, knock on wood, it's maybe it's resolved by the time we um, this goes on the air. Well, how but...
0: long is it going to take <laughs> for this to go on the air? Because <laughs> I, you know, like from the writers that I saw, they're not ready to give up anytime soon, and based on how the AMPTP is acting right now and that anonymous Apple exec, uh, everybody knows this fight is about much more than these particular issues. It's about power. It's about uh, who gets to say how our work is made. Uh, You know, we always, and, and at times I've been one of them, we always think about Capital and, and the ruling classes not having, uh, you know, not not forecasting too far in the future about what they're doing. And, you know, um, like, hey, they're just looking for profit, and that's how you can fight them, is, you know, you fight them at that point. But um, it's pretty clear that they are looking at this new uh, strike wave that's been happening across the country. If you look at paydayreport.com, uh, they've tracked and they document 2,900 strikes in the last three years. And we see stuff happening all over the world. We saw like things taking it to another level, even for France, where uh, just a couple months ago or a few weeks ago or something, they uh, they were striking and they decided to cut the power to different um, politicians' houses, right? Uh, the, the workers at the, at the power plants. So uh, things are stepping up all over the world. And I think that some of these tech companies that are part of the AMPTP are, are thinking about uh, things holistically. And so uh, this is going to be a, my prediction is this is going to be a a long fight unless, you know, unless they're like, Hey, you know, let's get back to making some movies. Give, give these folks what they want,
1: you know, besides being a WGA, Member,
0: I presume you're a WGA member. I'm WGA. I'm DGA. I'm SAG, and uh, I used to work for UPS, so I'm, i I used to be a Teamster as well. So, in
1: addition to all of those things, you've also been a labor organizer and uh, an organizer in broader issues. When when you're down there on the picket line with other writers and um, you know a- allies of those writers, what are the things that you hear those writers are concerned about?
0: Well, first of all, you made me think of something that is connected to, with, with that vision of being there, uh, you know, on the picket line. Uh, writing screenplays as opposed to doing music, uh, for me, has been much more of an isolating uh, situation, you know. Um, with music, I have to, you know, collaborate and and do shows with my band and this and that. Um, but With writing, you know, you're sitting there for hours. you got to block out the world and, no, you can't go to this party. No, you can't do it. So what what is happening, what I see with this strike, which is also why it may go on longer, is because it's fun. You know, it's fun to be around a bunch of other writers all of a sudden. Like, you you don't usually get that. And there's a lot more... uh, a lot more opportunity for connection with people that are doing what you do. And and I think people are feeling that. So some That's, of the- I,
1: I've heard the exactly, like my, both of my comedy partners are, are WGA members, John Hodgman mm-hmm. and Jordan Morris. And like what I hear from them, besides, you know, terror that even the possibility of having health insurance is going to get taken away or that, you know, robots are going to write their shows, is just that it's great to be out there and feel like they have this connection with their colleagues and they get to see Josh Gondelman or Carol Kolb or whoever it is Mm -hmm. that they see down on the lines and, and, you know, like feel like they're in fellowship, like feel like they're in a community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of what many artists are trying to do is like reach out and touch other people like in you know feel like people are hearing what's inside your head and all that and 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 especially in this day in, in the internet time like it all becomes theoretical like you know and you can get addicted to the internet because you want to see how somebody reacted to a thing and all that but this is just people you know and w- w- I think what that original creative impulse came from so the strike is gonna go uh, you know people, WGA isn't going to quit striking because people want to do it too much. You know, people want want this connection. So wh- what I hear people there talking about, though, and, and let me be clear, I live in Oakland, California, which uh, for those in other places is not near L.A. It's six hours north by car. And um, so I've only come down besides today. Um, for one other day of picketing, so I'm not there very often, but I am also on various chat groups with other writers and directors, hyphenates, and AI was definitely a big um, thing, and still is, and um, in, in a lot of folks are happy that the DGA put something in there, because maybe it Gives a leg up for the WGAs uh, demands. Some of the other things that people are talking about, as you know, like sometimes the pay for writing looks good to the rest of the country because you see how much per week someone gets. But built into that is time that you can't work, that you can't take other jobs because you're you need to be nimble and ready for you know the, your main one to call back. So it's really not as much as it. Seems. So things like the way people are getting paid, how much people get to do, how much they can, you know, expand. Can they, you know, visit the set and learn more, you know, learn more about it. So those are the things I'm, I'm hearing about. We've got more to get into with Boots Riley after a quick
1: break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Boots Riley. He's the frontman and founder of the Bay Area rap group, The Coup. He also wrote and directed the movie Sorry to Bother You and the new TV show, I'm a Virgo. Let's get back into our conversation. One time I went down to the San Francisco Chronicle to visit my friend Peter Hartlob, who's a culture mm-hmm. critic there, mm-hmm. with my dad, my late dad. and. um it's been in my mind because it was Father's Day and Peter is in charge of the morgue at the Chronicle, which is where all the old material sits. It's like okay. the archive. Uh-huh. And he was pulling articles about my dad out of the Chronicle from, you know, 1972 or whatever. And we sat down to uh, do his podcast and he goes, oh, you, you know who I was just looking up and he showed me a picture of your dad. He said, you know Boots Riley, right? I was like, here goes Boots' dad at San Francisco State. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your father was uh, an organizer and activist. Yes. What work did he do?
0: My father joined the NAACP at the age of like 12 or 14. And through some of that work, did stuff like uh, when he was 18, moderated a, a, a debate between Floyd McKissick and Malcolm X. And, um... Then ended up uh, joining CORE and with CORE moved to the Bay Area, Congress of Racial Equality, and uh, started going to state, San Francisco State, and through there got involved in more radical organizations. And he uh, was part of the Third World Liberation Front that uh, organized the San Francisco State Strike, which created the first School of Ethnic Studies um, And he there from there was involved in um, a radical organization called the Progressive Labor Party, who then moved him to Chicago and then to Detroit. And he was involved in everything from auto work to community organizing. He split from that organization and decided to go back to law school. And so when I was like and, and but before that. During that time, he was a all the way up to this. He was a bus driver and a full time organizer for Progressive Labor Party at one point, and and for CORE, I think I think maybe he was at. It gets all blurry because you hear all sorts of stuff. But um, so uh, yeah, he met my mother at San Francisco State, and uh, then when he when he decided to go to law school. Uh, he moved back to the Bay Area with us. And so he became a lawyer when I was about nine.
1: Yeah, I I had the the experience of having both my parents go to graduate school when I was a kid. My mom when I was about that age and my dad a few years later. A lot of
0: boring sitting around books uh, (laughs) in libraries, being told to draw on long sheets of yellow lined paper, you know, yeah,
1: well, I mean, you got that nice, long, legal paper. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I had to write a drawn standard-sized humanities paper.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, you know, people walking by looking sorry, feeling sorry for you because you're just sitting there, drawing, you know.
1: I sat through a lot of Latin American studies classes at San Francisco <laughs> State as an eight-year-old. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, (laughs) But I, I feel like in my experience, having been through that with both my parents who both have very colorful, long and colorful lives, um, my mom's still having a long and colorful life. Yeah. I feel like I learned a lot about the choices that were available to be made in life. That both my parents went to graduate school, not because it was the next thing after going to college, um, not just because the ball was rolling down the hill, but because they really wanted to do something in particular.
0: Oh, yeah. And that definitely was put forward to me. Um, there was it, I didn't have the sense that my and I didn't even know about this uh, other idea of becoming a lawyer because it's somehow moves you up the totem pole or whatever he was and all the people he went to a law school called golden gate which at the time was thought of as the radical law school um and so all the people we were around and him it it was clear that they thought that this was an extension of the political work that they had been doing before and it wasn't impressed upon me that there was some sort of thing of having a successful career or something like that. I didn't get that from, from watching him. I got the idea that you you have to figure out how to use yourself to help people, how to use yourself to help build a movement, because I would ask him, especially like being eight, nine years old, you're watching a lot of cop shows, right? And you're like, Wait. So you're going to defend the bad guys on on TV because he was being a criminal defense lawyer, and and so that was some of the first talks I would get about what laws were set up to do, and who the bad guys really were, right? Uh, and it wasn't who, you know, Starsky and Hutch would tell me it was, right? And and so, uh, but it was clear. To me that, you know, I, I was like, oh, OK, you're trying to help people. There wasn't a a question for me about like do something that brings in a good, you know, salary, do something that seems, you know, the 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 something being honorable, you know, a career that was honorable didn't have to do with something that was paying a lot. It just had to do with something that was helping the world. Your work,
1: both your music and your films, are really fun. Like, I, I hear you saying that being on the picket line is fun, and I know that's, like, something you really believe in. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, like, when you inherit the mantle of radical parents who really believe in dedicating their life to making the world a better place, um if they gave you that or if that sat uncomfortably with them
0: um well as you kind of pointed to you learn from what your parents are doing not necessarily what they tell you so i i don't know if i remember everything right. that my father said to me you know but i know what i get, what what i saw from him and so when we were in detroit like i remember there would just be a lot of parties, right? That there would always be com- people coming in and out of the house. I didn't know th- if our door locked or not. Like, there'd be all these folks. Um, matter of fact, there's this, uh, like, Barbara Ransby, uh, uh, who's now a very well-known academic. She was one of the youth that would be coming in and out of the house. Another guy named Wendell, who they made a documentary about, who's a... who's a uh, who's who's a mail uh, deliverer in Detroit you know they they would be in there and there just be full of people there'd be card parties and all this kind of stuff and only later did I realize that those were meetings right So, Because there'd be music playing. At some point, people would start dancing. There'd be Bidwist games happening. But there would always be the part where people are sitting around on couches and with their legs crossed. And I would just kind of go sit on people's legs or whatever, you know, like, because I was that young. Um, When I learned that that was organizing, I realized that that was people being in community. And so... That's kind of what I, I learned from folks. And, and, and later on, when I, you know, so, so my father didn't just uh, quit Progressive Labor Party. He was part of a split. And as people might know, that's that's a lot more contentious than someone just quitting an organization. And so it was definitely sitting uncomfortable when I joined that same organization that he had been part of a split from. But what I will say is some of the folks that I met there, um, that, that that I got to know through that all of a sudden, because um, when I, at, at the age of 14 and 15, started getting involved with this organization because of the, the, the youth side of it that had gotten bigger at that point, I met like, The guy that was running, that was the the chairperson of the organization at the time was a guy named Milt. I don't know his last name, but he had to be in the 80s. He was in his 70s. Right. Very like rambunctious, joking, you know, Jewish dude that was like just always cracking a joke. And this is the leader of the organization. And then there'd be, you know, these folks that had. Gotten radicalized during the mining strike in Britain that had come over, and they would always be like, "How are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna convince someone to go on strike if you can't have a pint with them, right?" And so, uh, the and 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 these were effective organizers. This is what I understood as effective organizers: people who had organized uh d- during those strike waves of the '30s, who had organized, you know, in in the UK in, in these certain conditions and that all of that put together, let me know that it's about th- that, that human connection and it's about an optimism, you know, that's where the the jokes come in and in the, in the sense of like you, it's not just because you're trying to make light of things, you're trying to understand things and you're putting those, the, those contradictions together. And, but, but by doing that, um, you are showing that there is a way out that it's not just um it's, it's, it's not just that things are bad it's things are bad because and so therefore there this is what we're going to do and to me that's connected to the quote unquote fun that's connected to this being alive being connected to people i have a, a song called laugh love and it's really about, like, trying to put different parts of my life together and understanding that this need to feel alive and connected and, cha- and being part of changing the world. And, and I think that is, uh, you know, I, I, I want my work to make people feel alive. And I also need it for myself. I need to make that kind of stuff so that I feel alive.
1: What did your parents think about rap music?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, I was supported and uh, I was supported in, in doing what I was doing. I mean, it's funny because I uh, was working at UPS and I, I met this dude named Pizzo the Beat Fixer, who was Two Shorts DJ. And um, I used my money from UPS. Matter of fact, E-Rock was my ride to work at UPS. And I was like, you should come to the studio and be in the group. Right. And, um, and this that, is
1: one of the, the other members of your group, the coup.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the or- original members. And so we made these songs and we got him to Pizzo, the beat fixer, who I had met at a rally where I was speaking at, at UC Berkeley. And he was like, you know, that political shit, that could sell or whatever. <laughs> and, um, so we got him these songs and he put them on this compilation tape, uh, that was with us. Spice one who also was working at UPS with us and uh, a dude named Mo Sadies, who's Tupac's brother who went on to be called Mo Prime and uh, it was called this compilation was called dope like a pound or a key anyway so I hadn't told my father anything about this and we're driving down the street and uh, somebody pulls up next to us with my song playing and he's like that guy sounds a lot like you, you should maybe think about doing stuff like that, you know, like kind of. And uh, I was like, yeah, that is me. <laughs> and, and he was like, "Oh, you know, you know, and I think he kind of felt left out and he didn't like the contract that I had signed. Cause of course he's a, my whole family are lawyers and I didn't tell them about this and just signed something. And I wasn't getting paid from it, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I told him I had all these other songs and he actually invested. We made a le- record label called Polemic Records. And uh, so, yeah, he was very supportive. I, I think our rela- our relationship, he he was around when we didn't know how to perform back in the time as we were learning. Because back then you perform and you not don't do good. You get booed. Right. And like which I think was really good for us. It made us get better. And um, he started having a kind of a stage dad sort of thing. And so, you know, when we got our record deal, I was like, we, we bought him out and just kind of uh, was like, it's better for us to not have this sort of a relationship.
1: That's both really intense and really cute at the same time. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, no. So, so definitely v- very supportive. Separately, we kept polemic records, and we put out um, a group called Point Blank Range. Uh, right after Point Blank is on our maybe on my first and second album as well. Uh, just some friends, and um, but you know, uh, as as you know, it takes a lot to do a record label. And um, so we didn't really keep doing that.
1: Did you feel like you knew where the coup fit into a hip hop world that when your record started coming out was changing really fast and a local hip hop world that was changing really fast and full of, you know, I mean, this is like Hammer had changed the face of selling rap records forever. Yeah. Hughes from Oakland. Well,
0: yeah. And and as a matter of fact, the only the reason we got signed was so using what I knew from organizing, I knew with with the 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 EP that we put out on Polemic Records that we just had to plaster the city. So everywhere you went in Oakland and San Francisco, there were coup posters. Um and it happened to be after Hammer after Too Short, after Digital Underground, Tony, 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 and, you know... Uh, and Vogue, we're just, we're just gonna keep... Yeah, yeah, I don't know, I don't remember if they had come out by then, but, but yeah, oh yeah, they had. Anyway, they, you know, so every record label was like, we have to have a group from Oakland, and we just made ourselves really visible, and, and at some point, it's to where people were like, let me buy this thing to see what what the hell it is. Why is that picture all over the place? And um, so we were like number three at the record store. And number one was E-40. Number two was Dangerous Dame. And they all were holding out for more money. And I was like, record deal, videos, let's do it, right? So all of those things, that change is why. And I don't know if we saw it as, it because when you're young, a year is a long time. Two years is, is like an eternity. So, like, you don't really see the curve of that change, right? You just know, it, like, it, it is if you're in the middle of all of that. But, yeah, we benefited from that wave that was happening.
1: We'll finish up with Boots Riley in just a minute. If you've seen his show, I'm a Virgo, or his film, Sorry to Bother You, you know how truly bonkers his work can be. I mean, I will just say that the horse people in his uh, feature film are probably not the craziest part of that movie. But somehow his work is also very personal and humane. We'll talk about how and why he creates that very specific tone on screen. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. <laughs> I'm Jordan Morris. And I'm Jesse Thorne. On Jordan Jesse Go, we make pure, delightful nonsense. We rope in awesome guests and bring them down to our level. We get stupid with Judy Greer.
0: My friend Molly and I call it having the space weirds. Pat Oswalt. Can I get a Balrog burger and some Aragorn fries? Thank you.
1: And Kumail Nanjiani. I've come back with cat toothbrushes, which is impossible to use. Come get stupider with us at MaximumFun.org. Look, your podcast app's already open. Just pull it out. Give Jordan Jesse Go a try. Being smart is hard. Be dumb instead. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Boots Riley. I want to talk about I'm a Virgo, your TV show, for a minute. And uh, we're being mindful of the strike action and um, of the Writers Guild. And potentially by the time this comes out, it could even also include SAG AFTRA. Um, but I really love the show and want to talk about it for a minute.
0: Yeah, well, well, WGA has said that as long as we are setting this up ourselves or with our own publicists, that it's fine. And, I, you know, that that took me a second to figure out whether, you know, was that in the spirit of the strike? But talking to some of the folks that are in the leadership of the WGA, they were like, they we decided that, um we'd rather people be out there talking about the strike and you know, um than not. So
1: well great. Let's get let's get into it for a minute. How long did you have the central idea of this show, which is a young man in Oakland who
0: is huge? Yeah. And and, and
1: myth mythologically huge.
0: Yeah. So um and, and this is important to the beginning of it. Uh, well, first, I started writing it four years ago, started writing it um, the beginning of 2019. So if I backtrack from that, it's probably a couple months before that end of 2018. And for me, the one part that was left out of that is was was one of the things that initiated. It. It's, it's about a 13 foot tall black man. Young black man lives in Oakland. It's called I'm a Virgo. So what I do is, I, you know, I think with my art, as I was talking about maybe earlier, but I'm getting a little confused, I am often looking for the contradictions in things and the ironies. And to me, um, when, when you're analyzing something, what you're doing is pointing out the contradictions this part works against that part. Uh, this part affects that other part. That, you know, So you're looking at contradictions. And those contradictions exist in irony. And irony is the main driver behind comedy and tragedy. And so I don't know where it came from, but what I started thinking of is if you see this, if you saw a 13-foot-tall, black man coming down the street the last thing you're thinking about is what he thinks about himself all of these different things and and so i tried to come up with what's one of the most trivial things he could care about about himself uh that he would think is important to him and that was i'm a virgo right and uh so that's where that started with i didn't know what the storyline was and I started I you know and I was like pitching people 13 foot tall black men in Oakland well and people were like we want to do it you know that sort of thing so
1: i mean the the thing that i think is really beautiful about this character is his 19-year-oldness mhm because his hugeness obviously has ramifications for you know practical things about his life they're very sweet and funny yeah um and it has ramifications around his race like like yeah. metaphorical resonances yeah but one of the things that this story reveals is the feelings of being a new adult that he is entering the world for the first time because he's been hidden by his parents yeah and now he f- feels like because he is the most conspicuous thing in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the the easy thing to call it is a coming of age story, but that kind of obfuscates what I'm going for. There's that if you are doing it right, where every age should be a coming of age story, you should be hopefully discovering something new about the world in relationship to yourself and going through these experiences um, in which you, you resituate the world in your brain and, and uh, are blown away f- by it are like, I think maybe, you know, I don't know, but maybe part of the key to just not being bored with life and feeling Invigorated and uh, and 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 feeling like you you're powerful, and so yeah, I wanted someone who was not going to be inconsequential in whatever space he was going to be in.
1: Why is the show set in Oakland? As sorry to bother you, your your feature was.
0: Um, I'm just a better artist in a place that I know, right? I, I, you know, it is. Uh, I'm able to look at everything from people to architecture to, uh, you know, uh, and, and and to other situations and not feel like an outsider. Right. Um, one time, uh, you know, I can tell people so far in the past now that I, there's an album that I never talk about that me and M1 from Dead Prez, we got paid to come to France and, and do an album with uh, Jeff Beck and um, Tony Hymas and a bunch of these musicians. And it was kind of like, the producer was like, I don't want you to write it before you come. I want you to write it here in Paris. And, you know, it's a different thing. I don't I'm not You know, I not, definitely not something I'm proud of my work on. I think the album sounds amazing without the at least one of the rappers that are on there. Right? And, um, and and I think, I you know, I, I think I'm just a better filmmaker where I where I am. I, th- there's nuances and details that I can play with and that I think so much of film right now kind of becomes it can be anywhere. It can be anywhere, maybe anytime, sometimes, but anywhere, anybody, all this sorts of stuff. And it, and it just uh, becomes bland and flat. And that's part of that. That has something to do with the economics of of things and where things are shot. And also the fact that usually something is a producer has an idea and then they, you know, they're they're not impassioned enough about it to write it themselves. So they hire somebody who's really wants to do something else. But is like, fine, I'm getting money for this. I'll 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 write this for you. And then. Uh, they hire a director that is doing that too so it's kind of like we lose all these details that might just seem like weird strange things but that that make it um that 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 make it important that make it feel real and it's weird that i might talk about feeling real when obviously i'm doing all sorts of crazy stuff but i need those i need certain details to 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 feel real so that i can use them as grounding to go somewhere else. And that, that could be anywhere from an angle on, on on a building to, um, you know, the way someone is standing, all those sorts of things. So, so yeah, I I, I like it because of that. Also um, I want to create, um, I want to create a scene in Oakland where artists are working together and, um, You can have a lot more of the same people you work with over and over. And we we don't really we don't have much of a film scene right now in the Bay Area. And this show itself, we had to film um, a large part of it in Louisiana. Some of that came down to calculations that we made about where where we from the get go decided we were going to have to build a lot of sets in order to do the forced perspective that we did. Because uh, we filmed most of this, most of the, the effects were in camera. And um, so we thought we were going to need more space than we actually did. So that kind of made it lean toward, well, you're doing that anyway, so go here. But but then, you know, we filmed a lot of the, the exteriors in Oakland. But the ones, the exteriors that we did film in New Orleans, they were lost opportunities, you know, uh, like where you're filming So that it doesn't look like New Orleans as opposed to filming, you know, either the beauty of New Orleans or the beauty of Oakland. You know, it's like you pick picking shots like that is like marrying someone because they're not abusive. That's just not the right reason.
1: It's a special opportunity that I can see that you take seriously to be able to show the community to itself, whether it's even when it's in this, you know. As you said, lots of fantastical and ridiculous and silly stuff happens in in the show, yeah. as it did in Sorry to Bother You, right? Yeah. But that you have the opportunity to give people a look at something that they recognize as being theirs.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, while I would like to say that it's just altruistic and I want to do that for uh, the people of Oakland, it's also... Uh, the people of the Bay area as well. The area is what inspires my art in the first place. So that's just what gets made. That's what gets made. And that, that, that is, um, you know, one of the outcomes is that I'm painting a crazy picture of the, the area. I think it, it gets to other things. It gets to, it gets to other aspects of, Humanity um, when 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 art is from a place, you know,
1: I can't believe that you have this many ideas and things and that not only that you think it will work, but then at least from my perspective, it does work. Like, do you have like a list of seven hundred crazy things that could happen in something, and you just make sure ten crazy ideas happen in every thirty minutes of Boots Riley on film?
0: No, no. I mean, you know, I think you know, I I, I actually do that with, uh, you know, lyrics. Sometimes you're sitting around and oh, this here's an idea. Let me write it down for later. And then sometimes you're writing a song and you go back and you look through that notebook and like, I know there's something in then Oh yeah. But that, that doesn't always feel as organic, but for me, it's just more, I, I create a problem and then, um, and then the crazy thing that you see is me having worked out that problem, how to, how to get out of that, that, that scenario. And so, in
1: some way, the problem earns the Solution, even if the solution is a crazy one.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and often the problem is talking about like you know how do I make someone feel something that's that would normally be on screen an idea, right? I want you to to, to experience that, and that's that's usually where the problem is, and and so so for instance, um, uh, Flora, uh, who is played by Olivia Washington, she experiences life in a much slower uh, way than than we do but when how we experience her is she's moving extra fast and we've seen people move fast on screen before and whatever but what i wanted to do was like simulate what that feeling would be that feeling would would feel uncanny and um like it's not supposed to be happening and so what we did was we um every time we filmed her moving fast olivia washington we had three women about her height in colored spandex that we would then film doing the same actions and, and with a strobe light and so we have this weird like Stroby, different color, people thing that doesn't say she's going fast. Technically, it doesn't really say that, but it, but it says something strange is happening, and uh, and so I wanted that feeling, like oh, something, you know. I wanted I wanted that feeling as opposed to and as opposed to the action only, as opposed to just the idea, and then on on larger ideas. So there are other ideas like um you know I wanted Jones's character to be really good at arguing right <laughs> and so there was a way to do that would just like just make her dialogue a lot more convincing right cuz that's w- what it might be but um I wanted to talk about what that the the feeling of being exposed to that new idea might might be like and so we have this material that juts out from behind her and puts them in kind of a black box theater sort of a thing and and where everything is made by stagecraft and, you know, and, and it looks like that. And I, look, I mean, everything is made to look like stagecraft. And so I, I wanted, yeah, I'm looking for ways to, to make you feel a thing. And for me, that means not, that means I have to do something that hasn't been done. And, and it has to come from wanting to solve that problem for that feeling.
1: Boots, I so appreciate your time. And I'm just, I'm so happy and uh, excited about your work. I just, it's, it's such a joy to me. So thank you so much for coming.
0: Thanks for having me. I enjoy listening to the show. Boots Riley,
1: a true legend. If you haven't seen Sorry to Bother You, his film, it is absolutely a wild ride. It's so funny and moving and invigorating and scary and crazy too. And I absolutely love I'm a Virgo. I hope that you will watch it. It is warm and fun and funny. And again, like surreal and scary, all kinds of things. And if you like rap music at all, go, go listen to the coup. I really think boots is one of the greatest rappers of all time. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. But we're going into the office, too. When I was last in the office on Sunday night to record my comedy show Jordan Jesse Go, the Levitt Pavilion in MacArthur Park was jamming, and the whole—all the windows, everything— everything in our office was shaking with uh, tuba sounds from a banda band. If you're in L.A., go, go watch those uh, fun MacArthur Park Levitt Pavilion concerts. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby, Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team, thanks to Memphis Industries, their label, for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places. Follow us. We share our interviews there. I hope that you will share our interviews with uh, somebody you know who's a, a metal head or loves crazy TV shows or rap music or and just is interested in the world, please share our interviews. Okay, I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.